The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. One of the reasons why I believe that photography has had such an allure for me is that it provided me access to so many different worlds, different people. For me, growing up in South Los Angeles, my world was pretty small. But through magazines and books, I could see and experience things that I hadn't even imagined. And as I got older, the camera provided me the means by which I could explore and photograph these worlds and people myself. It's what's led me to respect and admire those in our world who choose journalism and photojournalism as a career. Jamie Rose chose a career as a photojournalist, which led her to document stories both in the United States and abroad, with images published in the New York Times, Newsweek, and Time magazines, and Rolling Stone. But it's been her humanitarian work that has come to define her as a photographer, as well as an educator, as a co-founder of the Memento Photography Workshops, a unique educational collaboration between photographers and nonprofit organizations in the host cities where the workshops are held. During a time when the validity of a free press and journalism is being questioned and challenged, it's important to be reminded of the kind of people who choose to use words and pictures to share the truth of the world with you and me. Well, Jamie, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to to have you uh, join us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, I definitely want to talk to you a good a bit about the Memento Workshop because I think it's 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 an amazing concept and and the work you're doing is is phenomenal. But I want to I want to start off by talking uh, about you and your work because you know, I can see from your resume that you were uh, a photojournalist and you still are to a great extent. Uh, tell me how you know your interest in photography sort of geared you into being a photojournalist. Well, I. My parents were photographers, um, so I've always been surrounded by the art form itself. My parents were both school teachers, and or my my father was a school teacher, and uh, my mother was going to school and getting her master's and her bachelor's degree. And then, when I was younger, they had a wedding and portrait studio, and they had another business partner who was a school psychologist. So. Back then, wedding season was only during the summer, and they uh, they would do family portraits and things like that. And there was a dark room in our basement. And being a child of photographers, you are constantly being photographed. So, it the art form has always been around me. When I got into high school, was when I was approached. I, I want I took a photography class and. Um, my teacher, Mike McClure, said, have you ever considered doing the newspaper? And I said, yeah, I always wanted to be a journalist. And he said, well, you should be a photographer in the school newspaper. And so uh, for the next 
four years, my one of my best friends and I were the uh, she was she was the editor of the paper, and I was one of the photographers, and we just had a great time covering covering events all over the place. We were pretty well awarded. And then I didn't really, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I just wasn't quite certain whether I wanted to be a writer or whether I wanted to be a photographer. And so I went to American University in Washington, D.C. I joined the school newspaper there. I really enjoyed the coverage, but at the time I was writing just as much as I was photographing. And I got an internship in a way that most people don't actually get an internship. <laughs> it was the summer after my junior year, and I walked into uh, the Record Courier in Ravenna, Ohio. I was so green. I can't believe they let me do this. I walked <laughs> in and said, hi, I'm Jamie. I would love to intern here, and I will write, and I'll take pictures, and I'll do whatever you guys would let me to do. And they said, well, we can't pay you. <laughs> and I was so naive. I was like, oh, you can get paid for internships. <laughs> and I said, that's okay. I'm making money as a waitress, hand over fist. And um, they said, well, we can give you like a small stipend, but we've already paid an intern. But why don't the two of you guys just work together? And so it was great doing hometown coverage was really interesting. And so the year after I graduated, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had a English literature degree uh, with a minor in photo communications. And I said, I went back, <laughs> I went to the editor again and I said, I've graduated and I need to start making money. I would love to come and work for you guys. And I, I still can't believe this happened because they said, okay, what would you like to do? <laughs> and I said, I'd like to be an entertainment reporter and photographer. And they said, great, you can start freelancing and show us what you got. So um, I went over to the desk and the editor of the arts section said, well, here's a stack of books, here's a stack of CDs, and here's a stack of concert tickets that we get, you know, comped for us and theater tickets and things like that. And you can take whatever you want and go cover it and send us back a story. So I think a week later, I like went into the hidey hole and a week later I came out and I had reviewed like one book, five CDs. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had already gone to a theater performance and I came back and I was like, okay, here's my hours and here's everything I did. And they said, Jamie, we only do one CD review a week. <laughs> like we're good <laughs> for the rest of the month. I don't know what else to tell you to do. And so I started enterprise stories and pitched them. And I always pitched a photo component because I really loved photography. I started a series um, on my own for, it was called One Tank Trips. And I pitched it to the editor and I said, because there used to be like a television news story that they used to do way back in the early 80s. And I said, what if we did that in writing? And we went to all these different places around Northeastern Ohio and I said, I'd, I'd love to do that. And they were like, sure, go down, grab a brick of film. Cause that was back in the dark ages when we used film <laughs> and go to it. And so I started doing all these trips. And one day I got this telephone call from my editor or no. Yeah. The editor of the newspaper or the publisher, he said, you know, could you go meet with the editor today? And I was like, Oh my God, I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> And and I went in and I sat down and, and he said, um, well, I just wanted to say, 
my mother called me the other day and asked me, who's this Jamie Rose? Because I really love these one tank trips that are going in the Sunday paper. <laughs> I was so terrified. I said, what? I'm not, I'm not being fired? <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. And he was like, keep up the great work. I love, I love that you're enterprising this stuff. And I can't wait to see what the next one tank oh, trip is going to be. That's great. I mean, you insured your job by making sure that the editor's mother was happy. Yeah, the publisher's mother. Even better. (laughs) And uh, so that that really solidified. Like, I love this. I love hometown coverage, and I love newspaper coverage. And so I still kind of thought I wanted to be Annie Leibovitz, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) I wanted to go and be like a big celebrity arts and entertainment photographer. And but I. I say often that I was raised by a bra-burning hippie of a mother who <laughs> was a stark-raving feminist, and I love her to pieces because she told me from a very young age that just because you're a woman, you can do whatever you want to do, and you could be whatever you want to be, but the one thing you need to be is just. And so I always had a very po- powerful social activism growing up and you know we were encouraged to volunteer and I went down and rebuilt houses after Hurricane Andrew in Florida and I volunteered my time you know not only for scholastic activities but for charitable organizations so it was always really a passion point of mine and it wasn't until I met Mark Dolan and uh, David Sutherland when I was during that year that I was working for the paper I knew that I either needed to go to grad school or I needed to go to a bigger paper to kind of explore my photography. And I decided to look into grad schools. And I actually went to Syracuse and I was originally looking at their uh, visual and performing arts to get an MFA. Mm-hmm. And I talked with a count, you know, like a recruitment counselor there. They were like, I don't think you need to be here. I think you need to go over to Newhouse. I think what you want to do is more in the editorial side of things. And so I went over and I met, I met Mark Dolan and uh, I met David Sutherland and I got some information and I applied and I met with David Sutherland who ended up being one of my mentors who was my like interview to come in. And he said, well, you have mediocre test scores from from my GRE. And he said, you have a pretty average portfolio. The thing I'm most fascinated about is you have a job right now at a newspaper, right? And I said, yes. And he said, and you're going to quit your job and you're going to come to school. I said, yes. He said, you know, we're not going to guarantee that you're going to get a job. And I said, okay. And he said, you know, this is a very financially unsound decision you're making. (laughs) And I said, I know. And he said, you're not the best candidate that we have. And I, you're going to have to work really hard. And I said, I know, I understand that. A couple of years later, I was uh, like a year later, I was Mark Dolan's intern or uh, teaching assistant. And he told me, he said, do you know why you got in? And I said, no, I have no idea because out of all the applicants, they only chose seven people to come in that year. And the other six people were vastly more qualified and better photographers than I was. And uh, I hand bound my portfolio and I created like my own typeface and my own graphic standard to present my portfolio as bad as it was. And Mark took a look at the application and he told the rest of the group that we're meeting to pick the candidates. And he said, 
she's not that good, but she really wants to be here. And if she's willing to put this much energy into her portfolio, imagine what she's going to do at school. <laughs> and I've told people many times in my career, I'm not definitely not the, the best photographer in the room, but I work harder <laughs> than everybody else to just ensure that I get a place at the table. And I think that that's really how my photojournalism career started. And Mark said, I know that you put that you wanted to be a celebrity photographer or something. And he said, but the second I met you, I knew you were one of us. That's beautiful here. Yeah. So it was, that's, that's how I got in. And Mark and David really inspired me to take that passion that I had for storytelling, but also for social justice and combine the two of them together to, to make the work that I wanted to make that was going to change the world. But when you were younger, you, even before you joined the, the school paper, you, you said you had an interest in photojournalism. What was that about? What was the appeal to you? that you thought that you could express and and explore by being a, a journalist? I think I probably have an overinflated sense of right and wrong. Okay. <laughs> to the detriment sometimes to my ability to talk politics, because I just, I, I firmly believe that there are certain things that are right in this world and certain things that are wrong. Um, in a previous episode, I, I really loved... On, on this podcast when Maggie Steber said that uh, she thought that objectivity was something that you can't be as a photojournalist mm -hmm. in many ways, and it can hinder you. And and I agree with that because I, I always found, you know, I, I wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein. And <laughs> I wanted, you know, I saw the, um, the movie, The Paper. I don't know right. if you uh, ever yeah, saw that. Yeah, uh -huh. great, great movie. I love that movie. And I just, I wanted to be like, Glenn Close and Michael Keaton. <laughs> and it wasn't until years later that I watched it again as like as a photojournalist. And I just totally like the whole photojournalism scene when she falls and she doesn't know if she got the picture until she runs the film, like broke my heart and made me happy at the same time because I was like, oh, I've been there. Um, <laughs> I think I think the the power of the fourth estate is is intoxicating. Because if you believe in justice and if you believe in the truth and the quest for truth, then there are only so many jobs in the world that allow you the luxury of being able to express that truth and get other people involved. There's politics, there's the justice system, there's philanthropy and nonprofits, and, and then there's the media and the ability to expose wrongs and and lead people to the truth, I think, is one of the noblest practices that, that we can do in this world. And I'm incredibly honored to be a part of it. Well, as you just said, you know, ob objectivity is far more subjective than most people think it is. And, you know, with you having just such strong feelings and opinions about right and wrong, being aware of that your own bias in that respect, uh, I think is kind of important for you to be actually be fair. Tell me about the process of being able to sort of temper yourself with respect to that when it came to telling a story where you were sort of leaning to having a very strong opinion either in one way or another? After I left Syracuse, um, I went and I did my thesis in Israel. And um, I, I knew that I wanted to focus on volunteer healthcare providers. I didn't have a lot of foreign experience at the time. And so... I, I picked a country that 
I, I kind of thought I wanted to go into war photography. And so I wanted to cover people who were on the front lines who were doing something to help the war, not just war itself. And so I researched a project and I cobbled all my money together and I went to cover a group called Physicians for Human Rights. And they were working with the UPMRC, which is the United Palestinian Medical Relief Committees. And they were like the the Palestinian medical relief groups. And then Physicians for Human Rights were a group of Israeli doctors that were partnering together to help get medical care to the West Bank, to really rural villages, and then to areas that were affected during the Second Intifada. So it was a pretty violent time. It was the first time I got shot at. <laughs> the last time I wanted to do it, I realized I am not Andrea Bruce. I'm not Carolyn Cole. I'm not James Noctway. I, I, I don't know how to photograph when I'm that scared. Mm. Uh, but put me in a hospital where there's, you know, people who are, who are just striving every day to help solve the problem. And I think, you know, that just triggered something in me. And there couldn't have been a better learning experience for me than being in the West Bank, because I had an apartment in Tel Aviv, which is an incredibly liberal city. There's bars and clubs, and it's just this like wonderful, pulsating amalgamation of different cultures and religions and it's very uh, it's very liberal and then i would you know i would get in a ambulance with a bunch of doctors and i would cross the border and i would go into the west bank into you know sometimes like very conservative very religious communities suffering um underneath the 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 war that was going on because I, I we can call it an intifada but it really was an active war zone where militant groups were fighting with soldiers and soldiers were, you know, having to impose curfews on the population. And it couldn't have been a more frustrating situation to be in because I had really dear, wonderful friends in the West Bank. And I had really dear, wonderful friends in Tel Aviv. And, you know, I would sit down every time I'd go to visit the the clinics that I was working in and I'd come back, you know, I'd go to the West Bank from Tel Aviv. They would say like, what are they saying in Israel? What do they think about us? What, what's the poly, you know, what are you hearing? And then I would go back to Tel Aviv and, you know, all of my Israeli friends and colleagues would say like, what's it like over there? And why do they hate us so much? And people on the other side would say, why do they hate us so much? And it's so hard to be objective in that environment because you're surrounded by all these people who have opinions and they're very strong on both sides and trying to explain the the truth of the matter in a conflict that's been raging for centuries mm-hmm. is really difficult. And it taught me about objectivity and it taught me about how to form my own opinions about my work and and how to try to tell truth to both sides so that they can realize that, you know, the the one the one truth that I told everyone over and over again was I've sat down with mothers of children in the West Bank and I've sat down with mothers of children in parents, you know, on both sides. And all they want are their children to grow up to be happy and healthy and not afraid. And they would be willing to do anything for that. And unfortunately, sometimes the only people giving them options were violent ones. And until you can find the peaceful solution for those parents, the conflict will never end. And it needs understanding. And that's what journalism can provide. How did beginning to realize that the world and people and situations aren't 
as black and white as you may have thought when you were younger, that they're actually like these, you know, sort of muddy gradations of gray. How did that start reshaping how you saw and told stories? I love this podcast because you ask such amazing questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can't take credit for that. I think... I think it's who you surround yourself with. I met my husband in graduate school. We were both studying photojournalism together and we took a class with (laughs) Professor Kinsey and it was um, communications theory. And it was this very cerebral class and we would have these incredibly intellectual arguments. And to this day, my husband and I do not agree on everything. (laughs) We just had a very heated political discussion last night, actually. We used to fight constantly across the table from each other and we would have these like debates to the point where professor kinsey would say i don't even have to teach today because jamie and chris are just gonna go at it (laughs) (laughs) and we'd be discussing both sides of the argument and you know i i'm perfectly willing to admit that chris has changed you know at the time he changed my opinion on many things like i used to be pro death penalty I was very, um, very in favor of the death penalty. I thought like this is a way to deter people until Chris, you know, (laughs) laid out all of this information. Like, you know, here, the death penalty doesn't prevent crime. It doesn't, it's not a deterrent. When you talk to murderers, this is what they say. And this is where the legal system can, you know, can corrupt the, the actual path of justice when it comes to certain crimes. And this is what you need to understand and and examine it from this side of things. And we would have these raging debates. And then I would realize like, okay, you know what, there are two sides of this. And I have been surrounding myself in an echo chamber about this particular issue. And there are certain things like, you know, I obviously am not going to waffle on like equal rights and civil rights and religious rights and freedom of the press and all that. Like I'm probably not going to waffle on that, but Certain issues, I think it depends on who you surround yourself with. And and if you allow yourself to be flexible in your opinion, then I, I think that that can really help you understand that there is gray. And that's what journalism is about in a lot of ways, is examining, is there hope? Is there need? Is there, you know, when we talk about nonprofit photography, like hope versus need, when you're talking about journalism, like what is the other side of it? And we can't only speak to one side of the story. We have to describe it. Even if the other side is abhorrent, there still needs to be an examination of it because ignorance is what leads to away from the path of justice, I think. Tell me about your time working in, in D.C. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a rare experience for journalists, be they writers or photographers, to have the opportunity to work in that crazy town. Tell us about what that was like and what you learned about that experience. Well, I graduated from school and I I wanted to be a nonprofit social documentary photographer, but I had no idea what that meant or what that was. And I knew I was really interested in politics. I had gone to school at American University for undergrad, and then I went to Syracuse for grad school, like I said. And then when I graduated, I I finished my thesis. I, I picked you know, I defended it. I got my degree and then I didn't really know what to do. And my, my best, one of my best friends from growing up, uh, Liz Sidoti had just gotten a job as a reporter for the AP in the Washington Bureau. And she was moving down to DC and she said, why don't we move in together? And this would be fun. And, you know, you, you haven't decided where you're going to, you know, kind of settle in and do some work. And I had been freelancing, um, in Ohio for a little bit, I'd gone back to see my, my parents for a couple of months and I'd been freelancing and working for USA Today quite a bit. And I said, you know, 
why not? I love DC. That sounds great. Let's move in together. And then we like spent a week looking for apartments together, realized we couldn't live together. (laughs) (laughs) um, She found an apartment and then I found an apartment right across the street from her. And we were steps away from the Capitol. It was, it was fantastic. And I said, okay, I'm going to be a Washington DC political photographer. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to, I'm going to make this work. And so I, um, I took my portfolio to absolutely everyone that would entertain an interview with me. And I never asked for a job and I never asked for a contract. And I just would say, I'm new in town and I would like you to see my portfolio and tell me what you think. I I learned a lot from that experience, actually, because I learned that there were certain organizations that I didn't want to work with. Like I sat down across the table from an editor (laughs) and he looked through my portfolio and he was like, crop this, crop that, crop this, crop that. (sighs) I would just not even have this in here. And we got to the end and he said, well, thank you very much for coming in. And I, that was the first time in my career that I thought, I don't want to work for you. I don't care yeah. if you are going to pay me and I'm eating ramen or whatever. Like I, you and I wouldn't make each other happy in an editorial relationship. And that was a huge eye-opening experience. And I started to get different kinds of work. And a photographer, photojournalist in Columbus actually said to me one time, if you're going to freelance, don't say no to anything for a year. Just take every assignment you possibly can, every single one that you're available for. And I said, okay, so I shot weddings. I shot real estate headshots. (laughs) I shot some political stuff and I worked on getting my credentials. And I would say my big break came because I was doing, you know, a little bit of hill work and I was getting some freelance stuff. And then I went to the NPPA Northern Short Course in New Jersey. A friend of mine from grad school, Seth Sadisky, was the volunteer in charge of portfolio reviews. And I was sitting outside very diligently waiting for an appointment because I had, you know, my 30 minute appointment. I was ready to go show my portfolio to somebody that totally didn't hire me. I can't remember who it was, but it was like somebody who was not interested in me at all. And he's like, Jamie, listen, just come here. I know you did some work for the New York Times and I know that you were really interested in you know, maybe working for more for them. And Kevin Larkin had an appointment, but that guy never showed up. So do you want to take his place? And oh, wow. I was like, what? Yeah, sure. Why not? And he was like, I know they changed their contract and everybody's like really anti it, but you should go and just sit down and talk with him. And so I sat down with Kevin and he picked up my portfolio and he laid it out on the table because I had, I, I love print portfolios. I always, always carried a print portfolio because we're photographers. We like to touch pictures. We like to see them and touch them. And, and, a a laptop is so, you know, separating. So I, he laid it out on the table and he said, why aren't you working for us? And I said, well, you know, your contract got a little dicey. And he was like, okay. And he sat me down. He was like, let's go line by line. And he went line by line on the contract with me. And he talked about all the new clauses that were in it. And he said, I'm going to call you on Monday. And I want, I really want you to think about it because I really want you to start working for us and our bureau down there. And I said, okay. And I thought about it over the weekend and I looked at the contract and I said, you know, I know people out there are going to call me a scab because they did because they had made their contract not as favorable as some people thought, but it Mm -hmm. actually ended up being really great for me. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And the next thing I knew, he said, okay, you need to go meet Stephen Crawley and Doug Mills and they're going to show you the ropes and we're going to get you in the rotation. 
next thing I knew, I was working for the New York Times on contract for like sometimes five days a week. Sometimes like they would just book me out a whole month. And I had two of the greatest mentors that any political photographer could ever have with Doug and Steven. They taught me more than I possibly could have imagined when it came to how to be a professional and how to be well-respected on the Hill and how to be creative in an environment that is so anti-creative sometimes. I mean, you're photographing the same people in the same lighting, in the same room day after day. And, you know, like people jokingly say, the only thing that changes are the ties. (laughs) 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 So it's challenging to go in and say like, you know, not only do I have to be creative today, but I have to be more creative than the wires because, you know, if you're not and, they constantly and which is difficult because I mean the wire guys are Win McNamee and Chip Samadavia and Alex Wong, <laughs> you know some of the most incredible photographers of our age, and you're shoulder to shoulder with them, crammed into a tiny little well, trying to be more creative than the next guy. So it's it's challenging and it's exciting and as a citizen, I mean it's it, it's probably one of the the greatest honors to be able to to do that particular job and to be able to be at the feet, literally <laughs> crouching on the ground at the feet of power and watch how our, our democracy works. So t- tell me about that, because we, we're seeing a lot of that right now with all the different committee, committee, committees and hearings that are being held right now as we transition from one administration into another. And, you know, when you see the wide shot, you see the photographers there on the ground, right in front of the table, you know, <laughs> photographing these people while they do their testimony or, or, or whatever. And it's like, wow, there's not a lot of flexibility there in terms of the photographer. So, as you said, you're trying to do something that's kind of unique and different from, you know, the, the man or woman who's you know, who's crouched there next to you. So how do you find ways of being creative when you're, you know, basically right there, sitting there right next to your competition and you have so many limitations imposed on you? How do you make the photograph your own? Well, I think there's there's three responses to that. One is really knowing your equipment and your gear and having a very comfortable accessible setup. And I know that sounds like kind of simple, but when you can't move and you're squatting or you're sitting Indian style, you know, like right in front of a table and you can't go anywhere and you can't crawl in front of a whole bunch of people be like, I need a different angle. You need to make certain that you have, you know, your gear like the back of your hand. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to know the story. Um, I would wake up every morning at 6am and I would turn on NPR And I would listen to NPR all morning long as I got ready because whatever was on NPR was what I was going to be covering that day, Mm. guaranteed. And so if they were talking about Senate hearings, I didn't need to know that I had to show up and that, you know, the attorney general was going to be testifying. I need to know why he was testifying, who else was going to be testifying, what they looked like, you know, who... (laughs) who would be coming with them, their wife or, you know, something, their, their husband. And you would want to know, like, is, are they part of the story? Is that, is that the moment I'm looking for? Because sure, you know, you, you get the things in the bag that you need to get in the bag, like here, I'm holding up my hand and I'm testifying and I'm shaking hands with the senators as I walk in the door or whatever. But then it's, then it's part of the larger story. And I think 
I think that takes a lot of a lot of study and a lot of professionalism, and it takes a, a lot of attention to detail that can be lost on novice photographers. Like, I can't even tell you how many moments I missed mm-hmm. <laughs> or how many people walked in a room and I didn't even notice them. And some of the, you know, guys who had been on the Hill for for years looked up and went, oh, my God, that's, you know, former senator so-and-so who was a senator when I was in, like, junior high school. So I wouldn't, you know, I didn't know that, and I should have. And... It's it's a really high stakes environment and it requires you to be on your game a lot and it requires camaraderie. I would say that's the sort of the third thing in that is that, you know, there were so many times where <laughs> here's a prime example. This is like one of my favorite moments on Capitol Hill. I was standing at this like cluster and we were all waiting for these senators to come out because they had done this like a um, procedural thing where they had like shut down all the doors and turned off all the cameras inside of this one hearing because they were making it private and it was a big deal. And the Democrats were just trying to like get a foot in because the Republicans had been in, you know, they were in control of the Senate and this was the only like procedural thing that they could do. And all of a sudden I feel this like tap on my shoulder and I look next to me and it's David Burnett. Oh yeah. (laughs) He's like, hi. I said, Hi. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I mean, this is maybe like two years into my working on the Hill. And he said, do you know what's going on? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And so I kind of explained it. And he said, so where are we allowed to stand? And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm talking to David Burnett. And, and I tell him like, okay, well, you can't go here, but you can go there. But whatever you do, do not stand right there. Or the like sergeant in arms is going to drag you away and pull your credentials and it'll be bad. So just just come over here and this is where we're allowed to be. But you can kind of move around here. He's like, wow, thanks. I, I rarely come up here. And I said, oh, that's that's fine. He said, oh, by the way, I'm Dave. <laughs> 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 I know who you are. I'm Jamie Rose. It's really nice to meet you. And he was like, thanks a lot for your help. And, you know, that was such an amazing moment for me because I'm like, man, I know nothing. Like, this is David. This is David. Yes, yes. <laughs> and yet I was able to help him out. And at the same time, you know, I had people like Wynn McNamee and Doug Mills and Stephen Crowley and all these guys, you know, helping me out to to get me to that next level. And the camaraderie that's on Capitol Hill and the the sort of honor that happens you know obviously you sometimes have to elbow your way to the front and do all of that but at the same time you know we all have a job to do and we can all be you know good about it and help each other out and i don't think that exists in a lot of other areas of journalism yeah well tell me about momentum the workshop that you you helped create how did that come about and, and why Whenever Congress would go out of session or it would be like an election year and slow goings on Capitol Hill, um, after a number of years on Capitol Hill, I, I started to want to go back overseas. And so to make a long story short, I saved up for about six months. I Six, eight months, something like that. I put as much money as I could in savings. I sold my car. I boxed up my apartment and I put it into a storage unit. And I went over to Africa. I had been researching a story. I have a, um, we call her our adopted sister, uh, is from Kenya, and she's she's Kenyan. And um, I called her up and I said, Kagendo, I really want to go to Africa. I've never been. I think it would be, you know, a really interesting thing. Can you, you're Kenyan. Tell me a story that no one knows about Kenya. And she said, my sister is a maternal health doctor 
and she volunteers at Kenyatta National Hospital, which is one of the, it is the largest public hospital in Nairobi. And they have a big abandoned babies problem there. And I said, this is fascinating. What does that mean? And she said, well, women will think that, you know, especially the women, because Nairobi is, if you talk to certain urban planners, the second largest you know, slum in the in, in Africa. And so right across the street from the hospital is the hospital. And so women would sometimes have babies and they would leave them at the hospital because they thought if they left them at the doctors, they would have a better life. And I said, this is mm. fascinating. And she said, all of these doctors come together and they do really great work with these, with these babies and they try to get them adopted or get them into orphanages. And so I think you, you should go and talk to her about this when you get there. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I packed up all my stuff and I decided to get on a plane and just run to, uh, run over to Kenya and spend, I, I got a one-way ticket and said, I'll just figure it out. And so I started doing a lot more um, personal documentary projects. And I, when I was there, I met um, the director of East Africa's Doctors Without Borders. And at the time, Uganda was in the middle of its civil war. And he said, do you want to come cover our clinics in Uganda? And I said, yeah, I would love to. He was like, yeah, we'll, we'll fly you wherever you want. Just tell us where you want to go. And we'd love it as long as you, you know, we'll put you up and we'll feed you and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, getting your work published by us. And how about that? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so I said, send me where nobody would go. Send me where no other photographers are going. And he was like, well, there's this camp that's like out in the middle of nowhere. I said, okay, I want to go there. And I started to really dive into nonprofit documentary coverage. And I realized this is this is where I want to be. This is my home. And so I uh, focused on doing a lot more nonprofit work. And I kept telling people, like, I'm really interested in nonprofit documentary work. And at the time, Chris Anderson, the other co-founder, who is John Christopher Anderson, the photo editor, <laughs> he was he was at National Geographic. The other photographer that started it is Seth Butler, who's a documentary photographer based out of Vermont. And they, the two of them had met in New York and they were consulting um, with Magnum photographers who were teaching their own workshops. And every time they would get done with a workshop, people would privately come up to them and say, whenever you guys are ready to teach your own workshops, I want to go with you. I learned more from you than, you know, mm. big, the big name guy. <laughs> so they, in the summer of 2008, seven said, what if we were to do this? What if we were to start our own company? And they approached me and said, we're thinking about doing this and we want to do, you know, documentary workshops. And I had been asked to teach a nonprofit workshop when I was in Uganda. So from my first experience going over to Africa, probably once a year after that, I would go over with different nonprofits to cover work in East Africa. And while I was there, I was approached by a workshop company to teach a nonprofit workshop. The experience was awful <laughs> because the company just, it, it the, the students were all supposed to find their own nonprofits and half of them showed up and they didn't have nonprofits to work with. And so I was like using every contact of mine in the book. And there was another, um, another filmmaker who was there as, as the teaching assistant. And she was like, great. And she used all of her contacts. And we had a local provider named Vanex who was using every contact that he had in the book. And he was like our fixer and a journalist based in, in Kampala. And I just said, this is a mess. 
And so when they came to me and said, we want to start doing these workshops, and would you want to teach these nonprofit workshops? I was like, absolutely, yes, but I want to do it completely differently from the way that everyone else is doing it. And they said, well, that's fantastic because (laughs) we want to create a workshop company that's different from the way that everyone's doing it. So let's do this together and let's make it let's make it less about the personalities who are teaching the workshops and more about the documentary work that's coming out of the workshops. And let's teach people the skills that they need to be professionals, whether they're citizen journalists or whether they're, you know, actual working journalists. Let's take instructors who are really good teachers and let's put them in the field and let's take journalists who don't have the opportunity because the newspapers are cutting so many budgets and put them in India or put them in Uganda or South Africa or Sierra Leone. And let's, let's get really good journalists out there covering stuff and let's teach people who are passionate about documentary work to be better on all levels. And so Momenta Group was born. We had our very first workshop in 2008. And the first workshop was to Burma. It was about two months after the cyclone had just gone through and journalists couldn't get into the country. But because we were leading a photo tour, technically, um, you know, we went in and there was beautiful coverage that came out of it. It was featured on AOL News and one of the stories was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize from that first workshop. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. Barbara Salisbury's work on sugar babies, these children of children of molasses workers, was featured in, in the Washington Times, and um, it was nominated for a Pulitzer. And so it's it's really an incredible journey. You know, we're, we're coming up on our 10th year officially in 2008. And we've had over 500 students come through our programs. We've done more than 50 workshops around the world. We have worked with, I think it was something like 300 different local nonprofit organizations. And we've created a community that is something that is truly special and probably the proudest of all of my legacies that, yeah. you know, we've done. Well, you created a really unique experience because you, you put photographers uh, with a nonprofit in whatever city that you're teaching the workshop. So it's not them just listening to a bunch of presentations. It's about, <laughs> it's about throwing them into the pool and saying, okay, here's your client, get to work. Yeah. But, you know, you, as you said, you have people who are citizen journalists, you have people who are seasoned photojournalists and everything in between. What, what are some of the things that they have to come to learn considering that they may not have much, if any, experience in the world of nonprofits and NGOs? Because it's, it's, it's completely different from, you know, doing typical corporate work or editorial work. <laughs> in certain regards, I feel like nonprofit photography is like the perfect storytelling combination for like all of the crossroads of photography. Because the the biggest hurdle, well, I'd say the citizen journalists have a big hurdle to jump through and then the photojournalists have a big hurdle to jump through because certain photojournalists will come in and say, well, you know, I, because I'm shooting for a nonprofit, ethics be damned, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not journalism. And my answer to that is your ethics are your ethics. I don't care if you're photographing for a corporation or a nonprofit or a newspaper. You have your ethics and you keep them. And the truth telling 
is why nonprofits are going to photojournalists, trained documentarians, because they want to show the truth of what's happening. Now you have to, when you're, when you're shooting for a nonprofit, of course, you know, you want to balance, like I said before, hope versus need. We have to show that there's need, of course, mm-hmm. but you can't go in and show the most hopeless situation that anyone's ever seen because donors are going to look at that and say, well, obviously there's nothing that we can do to help this. And at the same time, you're not being honest about the reality that's in front of you because there's always hope. Um, you, you made a comment during one of the interviews about growing up in the Dominican Republic and, you know, uh, you and Anamia Davidson were talking about like, you know, finding joy and finding passion and, and happiness in situations that sometimes aren't. And I tell the students a lot, like I've been in some of the worst places that human beings have created for each other in some of the most hopeless situations that you can imagine. And I've always found somebody who is full of joy. So you're lying if you don't show the hope and the joy that's in the world. You just have to show the hope and the need and you have yeah. to you have to balance that together. And that is that's that's truthful storytelling. That's a balanced viewpoint. And so I think the biggest hurdle in in the photojournalist side of it is just getting over that and realizing like it's the same work. You're doing the same thing. Right. You just have a different client. And for the citizen journalist, I think, you know, in some regards, well, to be perfectly blunt, the thing that I find the most frustrating about teaching sometimes is um the value judgments that certain people put on nonprofits, like this concept that I can only photograph, like I hate the word grit, except when Nikki Duck, uh, Angela Duckworth is using it when she's talking about grit, (laughs) read that book. It's amazing. But, um, like when people say, I just want to photograph the grit. I need to photograph like the dark side of things. And I was like, ah, you're doing such a disservice to the people that are working for these nonprofits that are trying to make the world a better place because mm-hmm. all you're focusing on is the bad. And that, that bothers me because I think that, I think that it's our job to show the balance. And and one of my prime examples is um, there was a photographer who did this great documentary project with um, the LASPCA down in um, New Orleans. We work with the Louisiana SPCA and um, they, what are the, the photographers following around one of the, Uh, animal control officers. And in one day, this officer went and had to take a pet away from someone who was abusing the animal, of course. And there are photographs of the person like screaming at him and calling him horrible names and telling him he's a terrible person. Then there was a feral dog that um, had obviously been in a really bad dog fight who was injured and it was terrible. And he had to like pick it up it was a pit bull and it was not too happy about, you know, it was injured, of course. And then they had to take it to the hospital and he was so badly injured, they had to put him to sleep. Hmm. And the there's just a stunning image. It's heartbreaking of the animal control officer, you know, hugging this dog as they're putting it to sleep so that he would feel joy. <laughs> then later on in the day, as they were driving home and he's spending this whole day in the life with this guy, he said, you know, I... I'm supposed, you know, I have this list of like people that have puppies that, you know, they have adopted or dogs they've adopted. And I, you know, this, this guy actually, I'm going to go check in on this guy who just got a puppy. He's like single, single college kid, whatever. And he's sitting on the front porch 
the photograph is that, you know, the animal control officer just sitting on the front porch at the end of his day on a porch swing. And this guy's got this new puppy that he just loves. And the animal control officer is just like doting on him and just cuddling with him. And it's beautiful. And the reality of that story is like people could look at that and be like, oh, I don't want to photograph puppies. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to do that. That's, you know, that's not gritty. This guy's day was full of peaks and valleys and joy and passion. And and he said to the photographer, you know, people think that animal control officers, you know, that we hate animals or something because we're always taking them away. And he was like, but I love animals. And that's what gets me up in the morning to do this. The story isn't about the animals. The story is about this beautiful human being who has tragedy and joy and all in one day and and 365 days out of the year he has to you know face that 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 storytelling that goes beyond sometimes i think anything that you might cover on capitol hill for example and it's you know this this whole idea sort of pervades everything that we've been talking about whether you're doing documentary work for nonprofits or you're working as a photojournalist is that you know the photographer has to remember that it's not about you you know, it's it's about the people and their experience and trying to tell their story and not coming in with your own sort of agenda or perspective and having that overly color the, the narrative that you're 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 telling. And I know it can yeah. be I know it can be difficult, but you know, in in order to be I, I think fair and to be open to the story that reveals itself beyond your own expectations is 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 really the make of a of a great photographer. I think so too. I completely agree. I mean it's it's all about telling stories. It just depends on which stories you want to tell. I, I think my biggest frustration with the industry of photography in general is how exclusive it has become in many and many parts of the profession. I mean I when I was shooting for nonprofits I went from shooting like 90% news to 10% nonprofits because I just really wanted to, you know, try to do both. And then I shot like 90% nonprofits and 10% news. I called news my like dirty little habit because, mm-hmm. you know, the rates were terrible and the hours were horrible, but I loved it. And I'm so passionate, but I just wanted to tell really good stories. And, you know, when I switched over people, I mean, I had people tell me like, you're a corporate shill. <laughs> because you shoot for nonprofits. Somebody said, well, you're just pretty much just shilling for the nonprofits. <laughs> That's not really journalism. You know, I was president of Women Photojournalists of Washington at the time, and I was, you know, predominantly shooting for nonprofits and doing documentary work. And, you know, somebody said that to me, and I said, well, I guess I shouldn't be president of this organization then because <laughs> my, my storytelling doesn't go into a newspaper. But in fact, my storytelling was going into like, you know, whole annual reports, big, long stories. And it's all about the stories. It's the stories that we tell and the audience that listens to them. As long as you keep your ethics intact and you focus on telling truth, then I think that that's, that's the heart of what we do. And this exclusionary policy of trying to put people in boxes is unfortunate. And so that's why I'm so proud of the work that Momenta has done over the last nine years and from documentary travel photography and really telling people like, this isn't about just making pictures in a pretty place. It's about telling a story about the humans and about the culture and about the religion and about the, the traditions that make this place what it is. Let's, let's tell that story and let's find a, a narrative And at the same time, I would be very remiss if I didn't say that, you know, a huge part of what we do at Momenta, you know, almost every workshop is bookended 
and then peppered throughout with business skills training, because I think that's part of what sets us apart is we believe that you can learn how to be a really good photographer and there are amazing master classes out there and there are amazing other workshop companies. But what we want to do is make sure that when you're learning this, you're learning how to be a good professional as well. Yeah. So we talk about crowdfunding. We talk about marketing. We talk about good financial practices and contracts and copyright and how to negotiate with clients to not get bowled over all the time. And so that's, you know, the social aspect is the heart and the soul of what we do. And the business aspect is the brain. <laughs> we really want to make certain that everybody gets both on our workshops because we want to keep journalists and passionate citizen journalists working and telling these stories. And you can't do that without good business skills. Yeah. And you guys are doing great, great work. Um, Thank you so much. Well, my last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, this is such a hard question. I know. I knew, I knew it was coming, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> I... Well, I'm incredibly excited to find out that Dotan is uh, going to be on your show because he's definitely a photographer that I would watch. Um, probably one of the most unique, passionate storytellers that I know that's up and coming right now. Um, can, can I just name 10? <laughs> <laughs> Ten's a bit much. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I think Sophia Nolly Allison is one of the most unique storytellers that I've come across from... Um, from the Memento workshop side of things. She's a, a young, passionate photographer and she is a very skilled documentary photographer and um, filmmaker. And she's doing some really beautiful work. And I, I love her South central interviews that she did audio interviews and portraits of different people in South central and the series that she did on her mother. The video she did on her mother is just beautiful. And she's, She's just a very unique soul and a very unique voice that I think is going to set the world on its ear. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for making time for us today. I really enjoyed uh, having a chance to meet with you and talk with you. Thank you. This is delightful. And thank you for the service that you do with this podcast. It is it is a source of inspiration for many people around the world. And I really appreciate that you put your time and energy into doing this. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Jamie for joining us at The Candid Frame. You can check out her work at jamierose.net, and to find out more about the Memento Workshops, visit mementoworkshops.com, or click on the link in the show notes. Thanks for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the ones you heard today. Thanks to Zach Kalman and Dan Scape for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donation button on The Candid Frame website or in the show notes. 
To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. Remember to help spread the word. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame.